0: Welcome to Heart Yoga Radio, it's the 27th of June 2021, this podcast is entitled Remarks on Freud, it will be uh, one of several, I'm not sure how many yet, I'm not working from a very tight plan, I'm intending to improvise. And what it won't be is a completely definitive last word on Freud and all the aspects of uh, Freud's uh, work. Uh, it, it will be uh, somewhat partial. Uh, I'll be dipping into various parts of the work and probably n- neglecting other parts. And there's a reason for taking this, this kind of approach. I mean, firstly, there's loads and loads of work out there on Freud by people who have devoted themselves entirely to the man's work, to the study of psychoanalysis and and maybe its offshoots. And you can certainly avail yourselves of that if you uh, feel the inclination. Uh, There's a lot of work uh, from the angle of philosophy. Quite a few philosophers have engaged with Freud's work. Notably in this respect uh, are scattered remarks uh, on psychoanalysis from uh, a sceptical uh, Wittgenstein. And I've mentioned before that Heidegger also uh, had things to say and, and uh, quite a strong uh, uh, criticism of psychoanalysis, uh, particularly as expressed in the, the uh, Zolikon seminars, which uh, were a set of seminars that Heidegger Gave four uh, psychiatrists uh, in Switzerland after the the end of World War Two. Uh, uh, since uh, Heidegger had been a Nazi, he wasn't permitted to to teach in German universities. So he took his pedagogic uh, urges to to Switzerland to discuss his philosophy with psychiatrists, most of whom had been influenced by psychoanalysis. I mean, this is interesting work, but of course there is a question mark over Heidegger, given the nature of his Nazi commitments during the 30s and in World War II. Also notable is an excellent work called Freudian Philosophy, I think it's called, by uh, Ricoeur, a French philosopher. Uh, it's been some time since I uh, read that book, but um, I do recall, if you, if you are interested in this angle, that It's very interesting and, and had lots of uh, fruitful things to say. But also there's the, the work which is internal to the uh, still extant uh, tradition of psychoanalysis, of the, the therapeutic practice which Freud founded. I'm coming more from the angle of uh, the philosophical takes on Freud, And I'm also coming from the context of podcasts that we've done over the last few years in which uh, certainly recently we've tried to engage with fascism and the anatomy of fascism and the psychopathology of fascism, you might say. But also... You'll find in recent podcasts where we engage with the notion of reason. What is reason? And by the same token, what is unreason? And along similar lines to the concern with fascism, this has been uh, stimulated by current affairs, by what you might call a rise of irrationalism in many parts of the world. Or oh, you could characterise it as a uh, rise in the power of uh, a type of magical thinking, uh, which is completely enmeshed with socio-economic and cultural conditions. As you know, we've engaged with uh, with that uh, in a series of podcasts. So two series there, Fascism and the series on Reason, uh, neither of which are complete, neither of which have gone to the the full extent that I intended. In each case, there's at least one more episode to do. And it strikes me that that Freud uh, has things to say, not always directly, but certainly relevant to both of those series of podcasts that I've just mentioned. But there's also a third reason why I think we need to at least have a look at Freud. And that is because he does have something to say, again not exactly directly, about the the nature of the manipulation which populations are subjected to, via propaganda, via ideology, in the Marxist sense, rather than in that American sense, which means any kind of set of ideas. It seems to me that this is something we need to understand. It's nevertheless very difficult. Now, you've heard me say on on quite a few occasions that the essential question of political philosophy is why do slaves or serfs acquiesce uh, in in their slavery or their serfdom? Of course, one reason is because the state or the, 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 uh, the lords, the feudal lords, Or the corporate overlords do have the power to exert violence and the means, the wherewithal, the equipment to exert violence over populations in order to control them. But it's always better from the point of view of oligarchs, rulers, powerful people to persuade rather than coerce because a persuaded workforce is more efficient, more compliant less hassle than a a violently subjected workforce and this of course is the the Marxist idea of ideology ideology being the discursive means the persuasive means rather than the coercive means of of winning the acquiescence of populations so that's obviously a huge question in our, our current situation Okay, just uh, summing up that, there's three reasons why I'm going to be looking at at Freud. One, to further the investigation of fascism that we've already undertaken in some detail. Secondly, to undertake the questioning of reason, which again we've done in some detail in a series of podcasts. And thirdly, to try and understand manipulation of populations or propaganda. The rest of this podcast, then, I'll give over to some general background and uh, the very broadest brushstrokes around Freud's ideas themselves. And I'll start with the background to my own uh, involvement uh, with these questions. I first read Freud in the uh, 1960s. Uh, starting with the uh, the masterwork, you might call it, the Interpretation of Dreams, which was published in nineteen hundred. Though uh, strictly it was published in eighteen ninety nine, but the publishers liked the uh, the feeling of completeness or significance when it, with the, uh, the the year nineteen hundred. So. Uh, the book it was advertised and, and is still advertised as having been published in nineteen hundred. Uh, nineteen hundred was a momentous year. Well, this, this part of the, uh, the past, the turn of the century. Uh, Nietzsche died in nineteen hundred. Uh, incidentally, Nietzsche was quite an influence on Freud, and on Freud's progeny, uh, particularly Adler and Jung, both deeply influenced by nature, In 1901 Russell discovered Russell's paradox which threw the world of mathematical logic into disarray particularly disturbed Frege. Then only slightly outside of this range in 1905 Einstein published the special theory of relativity in 1901 Marconi sent the first transatlantic wireless transmission in Also in 1901, Queen Victoria died so at the end of the Victorian era. In 1903, the Wright brothers flew the first uh, powered aeroplane and Max Planck initiated quantum physics. The interpretation of dreams was significant. Uh, in an age of... Significant breakthroughs in many fields. I was certainly impressed by it uh, when I read it as a young man. What impressed me about it was the way Freud made connections and, and discerned patterns in the apparently uh, meaningless and chaotic nature of, of his own dreams. Uh, we should make the point that the interpretation of dreams is basically Freud's own analysis of his own dreams. Some people say this is an objection to psychoanalysis, that it is founded on the self-psychoanalysis of one man, and particularly on the dream analysis of one man. Early on in the book, Freud goes over the various ideas that had arisen Uh, so far, uh, regarding the meaning of dreams, including certain superstitious and religious ideas about dreams, and then uh, showed, and probably did manage to do this fairly convincingly, how his own hermeneutics, his own interpretative effort, was superior. Now, Freud had arrived at this point by his, his previous work which included the, the study of hysteria, which was a, a disease, inverted commas, or a mental illness, inverted commas, that was pretty prevalent amongst Freud's contemporaries, particularly amongst middle-class bourgeois Je- Jewish women living in Vienna uh, under very specific material and cultural conditions. But prior to pondering hysteria, Freud had visited the famous asylum in Paris called the Salpetriere, where a certain uh, Charcot gave lurid demonstrations of hypnosis, uh, which he practised on the uh, long-stay patients of the asylum. And through hypnosis... Charcot was able to get his subjects, his guinea pigs, if you like, to do th- things that they p- may not be aware of having done when they were snapped out of the hypnosis, or which they wouldn't under normal circumstances doing. And this raised the spectre of centre of will within the personality or within the psyche that wasn't the centre of will which usually conducts the decisions and of a person's life. And Charcot gave spectacular demonstrations of this fact that at least some people are not mastering their own house, not uh, mastering their own psyche, to quite large audiences of curious people and uh, medics and alienists, uh, in a very lurid fashion. And Freud was very impressed by this. Hysteria uh, makes one draw the same conclusions because an hysteric will very often have a symptom. I don't know, say a tick or a compulsion that they cannot control. Maybe there's muscles ticking in the face. The person, the hysteric, cannot control these. They're directed from somewhere else. There's another centre of will operating in the personality. And this is the big insight that uh, of, that Freud attempted to further elucidate by firstly interpreting dreams in the book The Interpretation of Dreams and secondly in a slightly later book called The Psychopathology of, of Everyday Life in which Freud investigates slips of the tongue and slips of the pen which again show a kind of an intrusion into the activity of a, of a person causing uh, a behaviour that's not actually strictly willed or under the direct control of the, the subject So slip of the tongue, you don't mean to say it but you do say it so this was again underscoring the point that basically we are not masters in our own house and this was known, and it was certainly known in the East for a very long time, uh, and Heigel knew it, and Nietzsche certainly knew it. George Grodek, who coined the term Das S, the uh, uh, certainly knew it. But Freud really brought it to the fore, and developed a, a therapeutic method out of the Insight. Now you might ask, what what is this uh, other will, or other wills that are going on within the psyche, or that, that, are, that are beyond the ego, as it were? And this is how we get the idea of the unconscious. You know, an hysteric is unconscious of the forces making uh, them behave in a particular way, causing a tick or... A, uh, or, or a compulsion, or a phobia, or something. Similarly, the, 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 the hypnotic subject. So we can say that, that these this second will is unconscious, and Freud's endeavour was to make these unconscious centres of will conscious, partly by uncovering their significant history, uh, which he placed in childhood, initially in uh, sexual trauma in childhood, and at first, Freud thought that there was a lot of child sex abuse in Viennese society. Later, he came to the conclusion that the the, the sex abuse wasn't real, but fantasized by the child. Now, as a little aside, I'll mention a, a book by uh, Richard Webster, which is called Why Freud Was Wrong. And in this book, Webster's thesis is that In fact, Freud had fudged the matter in order to save the face of bourgeois Viennese society. And that, that in fact, uh, sexual, actual real sexual abuse of children was prevalent in that society. And Freud covered it up by saying that it was fantasised. And Richard Webster's book is a... It's a fat book. It's worth a read. And... It's worth bearing in mind, you know, that Freud d- doesn't go unchallenged and, and didn't go unchallenged. However, this insight that we are not masters in our own house is one which it's very, very hard to contradict once you realise it, once you see it. It's it's hard to deny it. It's very difficult to deny. Obviously, Freud went into many, many elaborate extrapolations and and speculations about quite how all this worked and he came up with many variants over time over a long working life I mean, Freud died in London on the eve of the second world war having uh, escaped from Vienna escaped from Nazi pe- persecution he was a Jew secular Jew but nevertheless you know, Jewish boy descent and uh, Throughout this long life, Freud changed changed his mind or took different approaches, approached the problems that he he perceived. Within his experience as an analyst, as a a person practising this therapeutic modality, the core of which was dream interpretation. And as I say, it took many approaches, produced quite a few models. And that's probably why I'm not going to go through all that. It is of interest to people who are interested. But we're trying to look at the big insights we're looking at the stuff that we can be confident that we can use we are in fact looking for inspirations and insights in the work that we can actually use for our own purposes the big point then we are not masters in our own house our psyches can contain other points of will Other than our egos, and there are parts of our mental life or of our functioning, our psychic functioning, which are unconscious, in other words, that we don't fully know about, even though they can be made conscious, and the purpose of dream interpretation is to make them conscious, and the purpose of word association and interpreting uh, slips of the tongue and slips of the pen have got the same purpose for making the unconscious conscious. And I think this is is a notion that we can we can run with, and it is significant that that suddenly we are not masters in our own house and in some kind of a sense this undermines the optimism of the the age of reason because the unconscious is, is clearly fairly irrational if you look at the the behavior of uh, of, these, uh, of the so-called hysterics that Freud, Freud was treating, you realise that there is an irrational core causing behaviour, causing thought patterns, which operates quite outside of a very kind of strict and clear-sighted empirical outlook and uh, uh, ability to engage in logical inference. Just to underscore this, I'm going to read a quote uh, which it's from uh, uh, an article by James Hopkins and it's in the Routledge Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And he puts it rather nicely. Here's the quote. Freud was able radically to extend a common sense psychology of motive. And then a bit further on he says... The most basic and constant motives which influence our actions are unconscious. That is, difficult to acknowledge or avow. And then further on. In this situation, pacification via imagination is common because human desire outruns opportunities for satisfaction. In this last part, Hopkins has tried to summarise uh, in, in a succinct manner, Freud's answer to the question, well, how uh, does this ha- happen? Why is stuff unconscious? Why well, why do we repress memories? Or why do memories get buried? Maybe that we don't repress them, they just get buried. Because the repression hypothesis is, of course, questionable. Why or how uh, is it that there is an unconscious at all? And the Freud's answer is that There are certain things we just do not wish to recognise or avow. We'd rather have pacification of our troubles, and we can do this through imagination, which of course means that the real causes might well just then be pushed away, or taken out of the field of vision, or if you like, rendered unconscious, taken out of the field of consciousness. And we know from common sense if, and everyday lived experience that we, we may have desires that we don't want to recognise or we prefer not to have, and therefore we we bury them. So th- this is kind of at the core of the uh, Freudian hypothesis, and I think we can take that fairly seriously, but I do think that at the same time that we have to be a little bit careful about taking it for granted that the the mechanism by which we find ourselves having unconscious contents in our psyche is is necessarily a repression. We might need to ask some just perhaps naive and basic questions about that hypothesis. So I've made a few notes of my own here and um, I'll, I'll finish this Podcast on on this note. I mean, basically, giving you some background, introduce the un, the unconscious, and uh, try to appraise it uh, for its significance, but also to give a, a very brief account of how how we, we we end up with the idea. So, Freud is telling us that the subject is not authoritative regarding its own desires, its own motivations and impulses. Because there are motivations and impulses that are other than the ones that we consciously espouse, which our egos espouse. And this can result in perplexing behavior, which otherwise we we couldn't explain. So the unconscious is a posit of a state of affairs regarding the psyche, that enables us to explain non-autonomous behaviour and so the unconscious may be the result of repression but it's certainly the result in, in things being hidden away by some me- some mechanism and that equals a loss of authority and it clearly occurs uh, through some kind of transformation or censorship so Freud had this idea that there was censorship We self-censor our unconscious contents. But in dreams, the censorship can be modified, uh, moderated, uh, in fact, allowing unconscious material to emerge, but censored, uh, twisted somewhat, uh, uh, made symbolic, uh, condensed and displaced and rendered uh, metaphoric and metonymic so that its sense is still obscure and can only be arrived at through an operation of interpretation. So already when Freud's talking like this in Interpretation of Dreams, he, of course, is bringing in a framework on on which to hang his hermeneutics, and we can question it. Uh, The therapeutic insight uh, is presumably that knowing these contents, actually knowing the unconscious content, robs them of power. This making conscious of unconscious contents uh, I think remained significant for Freud uh, throughout uh, his career. Initially, uh, Freud, when he was working with Breyer on hysteria, uh, sought to get the patient to relive uh, a trauma, a, a root trauma, a causative trauma. And this could take the form of what's called an abreaction, which is kind of a more or less violent and spectacular spasm of reliving a traumatic moment. But later on, Freud, of course, moves from those kind of approaches to the talking cure, as it's called, by which the patients were invited to describe their dreams and and fantasies and to contact the unconscious through through talking, through word association and so forth. And this was probably more appropriate for more sort of complex multi-causal conditions rather than the results of single traumas. Uh, for some people this marks a kind of a mistake on Freud's part uh, moving away from the body and a physical ab reaction to the domain of language. But that's a a whole other uh, side trip. Now I'll go into some of this where it's pertinent in other podcasts. And I think I'll be looking at uh, the 1922 account from Beyond the Pleasure Principle. And uh, this does deal with the death instinct, which... I've thought we might look at in relationship to fascism somebody I forget who just described fascism as the weaponization of the death instinct and i I wouldn't mind pursuing that and I will look in at other mentions of the death instinct in Freud not only the nineteen twenty two accounts given in uh, beyond the pleasure principle but also in uh, civilization its discontents a later work and an essay a late essay written in thirty two to thirty three uh, in in the new introductory lectures in psychoanalysis and this would be the lecture on uh, anxiety and instinct and that also deals with the, the death instinct and updates the, uh, the ideas so I'm going to look at it from that angle uh, you know in a fairly specific way uh, because this, this this is a big idea that it's claimed can give us some purchase on on fascism. But I'll also take a look at a model again from the uh, 1932-33 essays which talks about the uh, the structure. It's kind of a topographical model of the psyche which talks about the ego, the id and the superego to give us a little bit of an idea of how the play of irrationality can erupt in society later on I'll show how some other people have used these ideas and I'll have a little look at Eric Fromm and a little look at Wilhelm Reich probably I've mentioned these before actually in the context of Freudian Marxism which attempts to Elucidate the question of manipulation of masses of people and of the, the workings of propaganda and the role of the unconscious in the workings of propaganda. So there's quite a, a number of things that I want to treat, and I, I imagine another three or four podcasts. Anyway, I'll pull this this one to give you a little bit of a little bit of a ground. Things to bear in mind are the unconscious, what that might be about, and the the idea. That we are not actually masters in our own house, in our own psyche, and this is sometimes referred to as a, a Copernican revolution and this decentering of of humanity was something that the nineteenth century and the, the and the turn of the century had uh, had been gaining ground of course Darwin told us that you know we weren't the center of creation but just another species that uh, emerged. Out of the survival of the fittest and the whole uh, unfolding of evolution, so the, the the human self-image that was given to us in Genesis, in in, in the in the, uh, uh, the Christian and Hebrew Bible, that, that 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 central position as the creature made in God's image was dethroned. Going back further, of course. Copernicus uh, challenged the idea that the earth was at the centre of the universe and that man was at the centre of the earth, but that the sun was the centre of the, well, the solar system at least. And that was a kind of a dethroning and that took place in the 15th century. So there was a long dethroning of the, the human self-image over time. And of course this this, this era, which peaked around about 1900 you know in, that, in in that turn of the century period was really bringing home the decentering of the human self-image so this is why uh, uh, Freud's important probably more than the details some of which discredited some of which certainly pr- uh, providing us with philosophical difficulties which incidentally I'll also go into in a, l- a little Uh, detail. Uh, I'll I'll probably do a podcast and treat Wittgenstein and Heidegger in in the same podcast, or I might do two there. But I'll see when we get there. Okay. So I hope you can uh, you can bear bear with me. But it, this this is kind of important stuff. Hopefully, then building on on some of this uh, description, returning to the series on fascism, the series on reason, and maybe. Uh, initiating out of this as well, a kind of a series on philosophy of science, which I've done loads of research into over the last couple of years, and that uh, this will, in a sense, do a little bit of backfilling to enable all that to proceed. Anyway, <laughs> I'll speak to you soon, over and out, and thank you for listening, and take care of yourselves, and make knowledge great again.